Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 26 Cabin Bruiser I went out the door of the mini-mart and along the gangway to the finger that ran along the breakwater. A big cabin cruiser was tied up in berth number eight. It had a red canvas tarp covering the aft deck, and, although a dinghy hanging off the stern made it hard to see, the name Vote Boat, written in gold on the transom. No lights were on in any of the craft in this part of the harbor, and with the sun now well and truly gone, the only useful illumination came from a sodium lamp on the breakwater. There was a short ladder hung over the side near the back of the cruiser, but the gap of oily black water between it and the dock was wide enough to swallow a shoe, a cell phone, or your whole being. I lunged across and managed to get a foot on the lowest rung and a hand on the gunwale. There was a display of athletic ineptitude then, which I imagined was not dissimilar to the spectacle presented by a fat dog attempting to scamper into the bed of a pickup truck, and eventually I found myself on my butt near the door to the salon. The memory of Guy Berger and the shooting at CVT flashed through my mind. It felt odd to be on the boat of a man I'd killed. For the first time, I let myself actually consider whether the shooting had been necessary. I told the cops and the dragon lady there was no other way. But could I have called Geiberger off with just a warning? I shook my head to clear the thought and crawled up to the door and twisted the handle. It was locked, but the lock was nothing special and ten minutes of jiggling a pick and a tension wrench with the penlight clamped in my teeth brought a slobbery penlight, a sore jaw, and an open door. I went down three steps and shone the light around. The interior had the feel of a single-wide trailer. There was a red Nagahide barca lounger near the door, a built-in dinette with four mica table and bench seats a small galley with downsized stove, sink, and refrigerator, all on top of nylon shag carpet that looked like it was taken from the set of a vintage porno film. The crab lady had called the boat refurbished, but this was more like a complete period restoration. With the naga hide, the formica, and the nylon, there weren't enough natural materials to fill a 1970s styrofoam Big Mac container. I moved across the salon to a small stateroom near the bow of the boat. The room looked lived in, or more accurately, wrestled in. Clothes were strewn around the room, and the few furnishings that weren't bolted down, a clock radio, a space heater, and a wastebasket, were scattered across the floor like thrown dice. The sheets on the bed were twisted in a big grimy wad, 
And even though Ajax laundry detergent used to claim it was stronger than dirt, I was betting on the dirt in two falls out of three. My first assumption was that someone had tossed the room ahead of me, but as I went through the closets and the built-in cabinets and found nothing either particularly interesting or professionally scrambled, I came to the less sinister conclusion that Guyberger was just a big slob. The last thing I did was pry up the mattress from the box springs and lean it against the wall. Underneath, I found two girly magazines and a penis pump. That ended my interest in the room. The attached head was smaller than an airline toilet. Apart from the fact Guyberger was on blood pressure and cholesterol medication and appeared to have been using his toothbrush to scrub the bilge, there was nothing of interest in it either. I went down a short stairway to the master stateroom, and all that changed. Rather than the flimsy veneered particle board that had been used to construct the door of the guest stateroom, the door to the master was made of steel, as was the door frame. A sturdy padlock secured it. When I realized the pin light wasn't going to provide sufficient illumination in the pitch black space, I risked the overhead light and kneeled in front of the door to go at the padlock with the picks. It wasn't particularly challenging, probably even easier than the lock on the salon door. But now that it seemed like I might actually be on to something, I rushed the job and ended up snapping the end off one of my tension wrenches. I had a devil of a time getting the broken bit of wrench out of the opening of the lock, and an even harder one substituting a larger wrench, which didn't really leave enough space to maneuver the picks. By the time the lock finally clicked open, my knees were sorer than they were after a teenage visit to the confessional. I yanked open the door and stepped inside. It was half storeroom and half office. In the storeroom category were items from Guyberger's land-loving days, including the push mower the crab lady had mentioned, and a collection of yard tools piled in the corner. But of more direct interest was a gun case filled with rifles and shotguns. The door to the case was unlocked, and seven of its eight slots were occupied. I figured the final slot had to have been home to the shotgun Guyberger brought with him to CVT. In the office category, we had a computer desk and a filing cabinet, and a strange-looking electronic tablet standing on a set of legs like a painter's easel. It had to be a voting machine. The presence of a CVT logo and an ungainly printer module loaded with a thermal paper roll like the one I had taken from Roadrunner clinched it. The machine appeared to be plugged in, but if there was a power button or switch, I couldn't find it. Nor could I figure out where the USB drive was located. I had more luck getting the computer booted, but the password screen prevented further progress. Since the voting machine looked like it would fold into a suitcase-sized package, I resolved to carry it and the computer off the boat for Chris to examine later, and switched to the sort of low-tech searching I could handle now. It didn't take long to hit pay dirt in the filing cabinet. In a manila folder labeled with the current year, I found a folded San Francisco precinct map. When I spread it out on the floor, I saw notations with the letters C, P, and L written in tiny script beside each of the precincts. Beside the letters were numbers ranging anywhere from hundreds to thousands, 
The letters were repeated at the bottom of the map, but the numbers beside them were much larger, and each had a double line beneath it like a sum. I figured that the C, P, and L stood for Chow, Padilla, and Loudon, and that the numbers were desired vote counts for each precinct individually and the city as a whole. But if this was a blueprint for fixing the election, someone had screwed up the plan. It showed Loudon as the landslide winner. I refolded the map and finished going through the file cabinet. More porn and a penis pump catalog. I switched to the built-in drawers and closets of the stateroom, finding a lot of canned goods, office supplies, expensive tools, marine equipment, fishing gear, and boxes and boxes of shotgun and 30-odd six shells. The last item I found at the back of the bottom drawer was a thin strong box with a combination lock. It rattled when I shook it, but the rattle didn't sound metallic like coins. I was rummaging through one of the drawers I had searched earlier for a hammer and a chisel to prize open the box, when I heard the whine of a starting motor, a starting motor for the boat I was on. I whirled in time to see the door of the stateroom slam closed. The engines caught with a dull thrumming, and over that I heard the rattle of the padlock hasp on the other side of the door. I kicked at the door anyway and got nothing for my trouble but a bruised foot. The boat surged backwards in the water, and I lost my balance and fell to the floor. Whoever was driving let up on the throttle. We drifted for a four count, and then the boat heaved forward. I scrambled atop a chest of drawers and shoved my face into a shoebox-sized porthole. I saw the last of three or four boats in the marina finger go plunging by, and then we were through the gap in the breakwater and out into the open bay. I slid down from the drawers, but just as my foot touched the floor, the overhead light snapped off. I cursed and fished out the pin light. I was convinced someone would be coming through the door any moment, so I went back to the places I had searched with an eye towards scavenging some sort of weapon. My hand passed over the hammer, an oversized monkey wrench, and, ludicrously, a small chainsaw in a case before I settled on a crowbar. I took a post beside the door with a bar raised above my head. I kept telling myself that I was only going to get one chance, so I needed to make sure it counted, but I was wasting my virtual breath. I wasn't going to get any chance. The noise of the engines dropped, and then they cut out entirely, leaving the boat scudding forward in the dark for a long minute until the chop sucked away the last of its momentum. I heard the sound of footsteps on the deck above me, and then a sharp clang from below and then more footsteps and the sound of an outboard motor drawing near. I left my station by the door and scrambled up on the chest again to look out the porthole. The only things I saw were dark water and the runway lights of San Francisco Airport off to the south. The outboard motor was held at idle, then it growled in acceleration and finally faded to a drone as it moved away from the cabin cruiser. I stayed at the porthole, strangely detached from my predicament. I was certain I was the only one left on board, but I couldn't for the life of me see what the purpose of the exercise had been, perhaps to get me in trouble with the police for stealing the boat. I listened to the sound of little waves slapping against the hull, 
and gradually I became aware of a change in the boat's motion. It was not rolling as sharply in the chop as it had been. The motion had become less pronounced, dampened in some sense. A frisson of fear shot through me. I dropped from the chest to the floor, landing in three inches of icy water. I lashed out in a panic with a crowbar, severing the knob from the door, but doing nothing about the lock on the other side. I wedged the bar between the door and the jam and pried. The tip of the bar snapped off. I threw what was left in the water and aimed another kick at the wooden bulkhead. It bowed slightly, but it was a long way from splintering or cracking. I whirled away from it and shone the pinlight at the back of the room. The shiny yellow plastic of the chainsaw case gleamed at me from a shelf in the closet. I splashed through the water to the closet, yanked out the case, and used it to plow the desk clear. I flopped the case down and fumbled open the latches. The saw looked grimy and disused, and there were oily rags wrapped around the blade, but I heard gasoline slosh in the tank when I shook it. I held it at arm's length, gripped the starter cord, and pulled for all I was worth. There was a metallic wheeze, followed by a kind of strangled hiccup, then nothing. I kept pulling, five, ten, fifteen times, my arm getting tireder and the water getting higher as I went. It had risen past mid-calf when I slumped against the desk, both arms trembling violently from a mixture of fatigue and panic. Then I saw the diagram. It was printed on the inside of the case, and when I shined the pin light on it, I could see a pair of fingers pulling a recessed choke valve on the chainsaw. Starting position was what it said. At that point, if the diagram told me starting position was cuddling the blade between my legs, I would have done it. I located the valve, yanked it open, and gave the cord a ferocious pull. The chainsaw snarled to life. I let it run rich to warm up and pushed the choke open for a leaner mix and strode over to the bulkhead to the right of the door. I squeezed the throttle trigger down and pushed the blade into the wood. The tip of it wanted to skitter along the veneer, but I leaned into the handle and the saw plunged through the particle board like it was paper mache. Wood chips flew like snow flurries. Directing the blade in a straight line was relatively easy but sharp corners were harder. In the end, the best I could manage was an amorphous, amoeba-shaped hole. The saw stalled before I made the full circumference, so I had to kick at the piece I had cut to snap through the last few inches. The water was now high enough that it was brimming over the edge of the hole. I chucked the chainsaw through it and waded back into the room to grab the precinct map, a Winchester Model 70 from the gun case, and a box of 30-odd six shells. The map I shoved down the front of my shirt. The shells in the rifle I clutched to my chest. I stepped through the opening I'd cut and hurried up the stairs to the salon level where it was still dry. The water appeared to be coming in from below deck, but I didn't know enough about boats to say how the bastards managed it. I paused to feed four rounds into the magazine of the Winchester, Then I worked the bolt to get one into the chamber. For all I knew, I was wasting my time. 
but I had to believe that if the bad guys had taken the trouble to steal the boat and scuttle it with me aboard, they would be waiting around to see how it went. And if they were waiting, the sound of the chainsaw might not exactly have been music to their ears. I went up the steps to the aft deck and opened the door, praying that the dinghy was still there. I was already shivering from my waist-high dip in the freezing water, and I couldn't face the idea of a swim back to shore. The dinghy was still hanging over the stern, and a cautious sweep of the 270-degree moonlit view available from a hunched position by the salon door didn't reveal any other craft in the water. With the cruiser sinking discernibly lower by the minute, I was tempted to jump into the dinghy and paddle for it, but I forced myself to go up the ladder to the flybridge to check out the view from the top. The crack of a pistol shot echoing over the water convinced me I'd made the right decision. I flopped to the deck like a trained seal and patted myself furiously. Everything was still attached. I combat crawled my way past the helm chair to the console. I counted to ten, held my breath, and then slowly raised myself above the low windshield and rested the barrel of the Winchester on the plexiglass. There was another large cruiser, almost directly ahead, at a distance of a hundred yards. Its running lights were off, but I could see three men standing at the stern. Two of them were dressed in street clothes and sported what looked like 9mm automatics, while the third was wearing a wetsuit and had a scuba tank on his back. Faint light reflected off the glass of his face mask, which was pushed above his forehead, and he gripped a line that ran from the railing to a motor launch. I searched for the name of the cruiser on the transom, but it appeared to be obscured. I eased back on my haunches and nearly laughed aloud. Yes, I was the moron who let himself be trapped on a sinking boat. But these were the wingnuts who'd let me get hold of a high-powered rifle and then paraded around like shooting gallery targets. I knew I would never be able to pick them off in cold blood. Killing the two in my office after they attacked Gretchen was one thing. Shooting Guyberger, another. But I didn't have the makings of a sniper. It wouldn't do to have them taking pot shots at me while I made my exit, though. And I didn't like the idea of the diver scavenging the wreck after it sank. I sighted the rifle at a point about a foot above the waterline. I braced for a shot, pulled the trigger. The report of the rifle set both ears ringing, and the recoil punished my shoulder, but that was nothing to the effect the shot had on the men in the boat. The bullet dropped several inches from where I was aiming, but still managed to tear into the hull. I heard, or more accurately felt, a visceral thud after it hit. The trio on the stern froze like they'd been caught in a spotlight and then dropped below the railing, one of them reaching an automatic over the top to fire blindly in my direction. I worked the bolt quickly and pounded the stern with another round. That persuaded the shooter to give up on the automatic and scramble towards the helm. I had dropped two more pills into the back of the boat by the time they coaxed one of the engines to life. The other almost certainly shot out of commission. I stood and watched as they limped away to the east, 
with a motor launch bucking and dancing in the wake behind them. All this had taken too long. I jerked around to find the aft deck flooded and the level of the boat in the water so low that the dinghy was already floating behind it. I threw down the rifle and half slid, half jumped down the ladder to the deck below, landing with a splash in water that came to mid-thigh. I waded across to the dinghy and heaved myself into it. Yanking my knife off my ankle, I slashed at the slack lines that still secured it. The dinghy drifted free, and I watched with a morbid fascination as water crusted the gunnels on the cruiser and the bow began to rise. The hiss of air escaping from the portion of the boat above water fought with a gurgle of bubbles from the submerged section. The bow rose further, and soon the boat stood on its stern like a trained killer whale. A sudden suction drew the dinghy towards the cruiser and panicked me into fitting oars into oarlocks and rowing off a safe distance. At the end, the bow of the cruiser came back to a 30-degree angle and then slid beneath the chop with what seemed to me was almost an audible sigh. I put my back into the oars and rowed for all I was worth. If the cold and the wet weren't motivating enough, I didn't want the jokers on the other boat coming back to find me in a 10-foot dinghy. 30 minutes, and nearly as many blisters later, I came up on a skiff with a mechanic's light hanging from the mast, about a quarter mile from the opening of the marina breakwater. Sitting on a plastic lawn chair in the middle of the skiff was the crab lady. She was wearing iPod earphones, was bent over one of her traps, and didn't hear me until I was right on top of her. Hey, I shouted when she looked up. Got any of those dogs left? You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>